This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. I don't know about you, but I start going to movies when they were silent. <laughs> My folks told me that at one point I was sitting there and saying, I don't want to see the man kiss the lady. I've changed considerably since then. Uh, but we have a gentleman with us who has been seeing movies and telling us about them, and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of them. And he loves music as much as he loves movies, and it's my pleasure and privilege to introduce Leonard Malton. Yo! Without notes, Thank I'm so you. Oh, who needs notes? Uh, I never know what I'm going to say, and when I'm done, I don't know what I've said. So uh, I hope you'll pay attention. I never do. Uh, I thought, because I, I do know some of you uh, good folks, I don't know all of you, I thought maybe just to kind of break the ice, it will all have just a little, a little sing-along to it. It's hard out here for a minute. <laughs> kind of get us all <laughs> know each other a little better, break down some wall. Uh, I, uh, I do love music. Bit Busy made my, my day, my month, by asking me just a few minutes ago if there was any possibility that I was related to Bernie Malton, who was a pianist that he used on a number of uh, dates years ago. and. Yes, that was my uncle, my father's older brother. And uh, I come by my love of music uh, from both parents, but my mother was a professional singer. Uh, she was working in nightclubs, singing and playing an accordion when she was a teenager, uh, underage actually, in the 40s, and has uh, endless stories about her adventures uh, doing that. And then was briefly in the chorus of Carousel on Broadway, and uh, uh, had the interesting experience of being on Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts at one time. We have a transcription of her appearance there. Apparently, the fix was in for Vic Dumont to win that week, <laughs> but she got as much applause as he did. So she too won a week on Godfrey's daily radio show. So that was a big, big event. Uh, my dad was not musical, but uh, he uh, adored, idolized his older brother. Bernie died, uh, much too young, on an operating table. I was about a year and a half old. And my father inherited his uh, his uh, ASCAP estate. And so I grew up sort of being aware of certain things most kids wouldn't be. Uh, my my uncle was a, was a modestly successful songwriter. He was a very successful working pianist, but a modestly successful songwriter. But he had a couple of songs that were, were recorded by good people, and then occasionally got some airplay, and there were two big events every year in our household. Uh, one was, there was one song of my uncle's that Lawrence Welk used to do about once a year on network television. So I learned early on about how important that was to the ASCAP check. And, and the other was that uh, Captain Kangaroo on CBS, also a network television show, used to do kind of a record act bit with one of my uncle's old 78s. So those were the two breadwinners uh, when I was growing up. My, my, my dad 
was kind of lazy in following up on, on certain things about uh, uh, royalties. And, uh, he was very good about renewing copyrights and stuff, but then he got a little lazy about some stuff. And so a few years ago, I said to him that there was a, uh, a Fats Waller compilation that came out from, from RCA BMG that had like the, it was a multi installment thing of the complete Fats Waller. Chronological, and he recorded one of my uncle's songs. And I said to my dad, "You got any money out of that?" And he said, "No." I said, "Well, it's you know, I don't didn't sell millions, but it sold some. There ought to be some result." So he he tried calling. I forget what what publishing company it was that had been you know subsumed by Warner Brothers Music, Warner Music. But he tried calling and got into kind of a voicemail hell, trying to get through to somebody. So. I said, all right, I'm going to try to do something. So I called somebody I knew in the music business, and I said, how do I follow up? My dad's not going to do it. I just, it's just not principle. I'd like to, to, to see something from this. For him. So, so why'd you call Les Biden? He said, I had a Warner Music. He'll, he'll take your call. He said, why would he take my call? I said, I don't know who you are. I'll take your call. So I, I made the call, and he got on the phone, and I said, I, I feel silly bothering you something as mundane as this, but I told him brief, my uncle was a songwriter, my father had the estate, I knew this song had been collected on a, on a CD, and how do I follow up on royalty? He said, give me the name of the song, give me your father's phone number, address, I'll make sure it gets taken care of. And about three weeks later, my dad got a letter from the head of royal, the royalty department, and a check for $98.22. Uh, <laughs> saying that Warner prided itself on, you know, keeping good books and all this kind of stuff. All it took was a call for the president to make it happen. But anyway, so I know a little about the music business, but just as a kind of a, you know, sideline thing. My, my, but I do love music, and I love jazz, and I, uh, I guess I came by it, you know, just from being exposed to it. Uh, as with movies, my, my, my other great love in life, my, my, Whenever I get pessimistic about the state of things or about the fact that younger people don't seem to know uh, uh, so much of what's come before their time, uh, I'm reminded of the fact that they have so little opportunity to be exposed to it. Now, how do you know if you like something if, if you never have a chance to see it or hear it? Uh, you know, uh, I've had people say to me, for instance, so my kids won't watch black and white movies. I say, oh, I, I'm so tired of this. And I say, all right, look, when you're a kid and you like McDonald's hamburgers, okay, fine. But at some point in your life, I hope, some point in your life when you're maturing, you hope somebody, maybe your parent, maybe an adult friend, maybe an older brother, whoever, will take you to a restaurant and introduce you to a really good steak and say, okay, I know you like the hamburgers at McDonald's, and that's okay, but here's, here's a... You know, uh, another kind of uh, meat that's a little, little better and a little more quality, and you can see the difference in tasting. Well, if nobody ever does that, then you'll spend your whole life getting Happy Meals and McDonald's and collecting the little toys. Um, and, and we live in the age of arrested development, so that's entirely possible that that's happening in millions of households. But uh, I, I like to think that there's just a chance. In the days of, uh, in the great days of, uh, television variety shows, when I was growing up, uh, there was always the accidental encounter. Uh, 
you tuned into the Ed Sullivan Show really to see the comedian and the Beatles, and by accident you'd hear Ella Fitzgerald. Or by chance you'd hear, you know, Robert Merrill sing an aria. You know, it was that kind of thing. It's the same thing that people say about the loss of card files in libraries, where while flipping through those terrible index cards and getting nicks on your fingers, uh, looking for a specific, specific book, your eye would fall on something by accident and say, oh, that looks interesting. And you might pursue that. In this age of specific information retrieval, that doesn't happen very much. Anymore. And we live in the age of narrow casting now, so that if you like heavy metal music or, or country music or progressive country music or regressive country music, uh, you can listen to a station that never plays anything but that. On the one hand, that's great. You know, you, you can tune into something you like. That, that, there's nothing wrong with that intrinsically. But again, it means you're never going to accidentally hear something else that if you heard, you just might like. So my uh, little contribution to, to this, what my wife calls my missionary work, is that I teach a class at USC. I inherited this class. It's a famous class that was started 1960 by Arthur Knight, some of you may remember him. He was a very prominent film critic. And he wrote a book that for many years was the only one-volume history of movie called Liveliest Art. Very good book. And he had the idea back then, uh, teaching at USC, that here we are, here's teaching in Hollywood. Why not invite filmmakers down to the campus with their newest films and have a discussion with the students about the new film? But when he started doing this, John Ford was still making film. Uh, he had he had amazing guests in that class, amazing, and almost a who's who of filmmakers from John Ford to John Cassavetes and everybody in between. When he retired, Charles Chaplin took over, of course. Right? He was the film critic for the L.A. Times, and the, the parade of guests continued. And now the students uh, also started to have interesting. Credentials. George Lucas took this place with Charles Chaplin. Brian Grazer took this class. All sorts of people who are movers and shakers in the film world attended this class. And I'm the latest one. I've been doing it for eight years now. I just love it. It's a big class. It's 350 students in Norris Theater. I don't know if you've ever been down to the campus and been in that theater. But, by the way, it's got great sound because the sound system was installed by all the guys who invented THX sound. They're all USC grads. So they came back and put in this great picture of the sound system. But we show new movies on the eve of their release and have maybe the director, the writer, the poser, the art director, costume designer, actor, someone, somehow several people connected with that movie. So it's not a film history class, but when I was teaching my first semester, we showed them the new version, 98, of uh, Great Expectations, a new film that Alfonso Cuaron made with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Ethan Hawke. And I said to my class the week before, just out of curiosity, how many of you have seen the classic 40s version of Great Expectations by David Lean? Five hands went up out of 350. So I said, ooh. And I knew there was a challenge here that had to be met. I couldn't change what the course was. I wasn't hired to teach a film history class, but I had it get in my licks somehow. So I decided on the last night of the semester, I'd show an old movie and have a guest from the old movie. And, uh, then I said, well, the guests ought to be somebody they recognize. That'll help grease the, the path. And then I knew exactly who the guest should be. This was 1998, spring of 98. And I called the woman I've known for a long time. 
She said she'd be happy to come down. It was Gloria Stewart, who had just been Oscar nominated for her role in Titanic, uh, but who I knew first and foremost as a leading lady in movies of the 1930s. And I called Universal, a very nice guy there in the archive, and I said, is there any chance you have a print of John Ford's airmail? It's 1932 movie. He said, we just struck a new print. How'd you know that? I said, I didn't. Is there any chance I could borrow that print? Because I knew if I was going to show an old movie, a black and white old movie, it had to look great. How else are you going to, you know, dispel somebody's feeling that somehow black and white looks old, <laughs> like an antique, like a museum piece? So I lucked out there. So Gloria came. It was the fourth movie she ever made. And the kids, of course, had all seen her in Titanic. They'd all seen her on the Oscar show and all that. And she had them in the palm of her hand. Now, they didn't even know what to ask her, really. They never encountered someone from that era. And she's very open. One girl finally said, well, what do you think of yourself when you see this film, your performance? She said, oh, I was terrible. She said, I, you know, I'd been studying capacity in a playhouse. I was learning to act on the stage. I didn't understand at all how to act for the camera. I had no film technique at all. She said, oh, it's just, they just hired me because I was pretty. Well, when you hear somebody that candid, it's really disarming. And it was a, the, the evening was a great success. So I've done that ever since, the last night of every semester. And then about two years ago, feeling my oats, because uh, the class is well attended, things are fine, and they kind of leave me alone. Years ago, I started collecting films in 16 millimeter. I started collecting primarily short subjects and cartoons, because they were great gloves of mine. I said, I'm going to show a shorter. And just give them a little capsule history of whoever's in it, context of the film. I want to show them all kinds, cartoons, newsreels, two-reel comedies, musical shorts, vaudeville shorts, the works. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And what's fascinating to me is that out of the 350 kids, you know, a lot of them, there's a kind of glassy stare when I show this stuff. The cartoons always go over well, but some of the other stuff's a little more difficult to grasp. Uh, uh, and But then there's some who really, really get it. And they turn on to it. They'll come to me after the class, they'll say, can I get these on DVD? Is there a way to find these? How would I, find, how would I see more of this stuff? And if I just turn on one or two or three kids every semester, I figure, uh, you know, I've, I've accomplished a little something. But all I'm doing is just showing it to them. They don't have to love it. If they don't want to ever see it again, fine. But maybe if they encounter it somewhere else by accident, maybe this familiarity will, you know, start some chain reaction. Maybe they'll have some curiosity about it. Maybe they'll want to see more, hear more. One that I want to show you, I showed an Eddie Cantor short, a very funny short, made in the earliest days of talkies. It's just a vaudeville act. It's him doing an act that has a song in the middle of it. And uh, they didn't get any of the jokes. They were all a little too specific, a little too topical. He's filling out an insurance form. The guy says, what's your nationality? He says, Irish. Yeah, it's Irish. He said, well, I'm Irish and Jewish. He said, well, what side are you Jewish? He said, on the east side. <laughs> it's a great joke, but nobody gets it. And those of you who didn't ask someone else at the table, I'll explain it to you. Uh, but some things they really do seem to warm to, and it's, it's, it's encouraging to see. I, uh, I love it, so I, I hope that my, I hope some of my enthusiasm is at least in a small way contagious. And there's some people who are immune to it, others others who, who aren't. The second old film I showed my second semester was Ernst Lubitsch's great uh, comedy To Be or Not To Be. Uh, and Robert Stack came. He 
He was a very young leading man in that film, which starred Carol Lombard and Jack Benny. It's a great, great movie. And he was a charming guest, and they, of course, all knew him from television, his, you know, countless television appearances. At the end of the night, a guy came up to one of my students, came up to me, and he said, you know, I never would have watched a film like this on my own, but I really like this, and I'm going to try to buy it on video. I wanted to hug him. It's like, you just made my whole semester. That's it. I think, I, I think, so I think there's always hope. Anytime I get a little too discouraged about the state of things, I'm not somebody who lives in the past. I really don't. I love the past. I cherish the past. But I, I, I have to accept that I live in the present, looking toward the future. I have a young daughter who always keeps me on my toes. And uh, I learned with her because my wife and I exposed her to all the stuff we loved when she was very young, before she had a mouth. You know, answer back. You know, no, I won't watch that. No, I won't listen to that. Uh, once she's young, I'm a little more pliable. And she, she loves a lot of this stuff. Her favorite movie remains, my wife's favorite movie, The Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And she will frequently have friends over and she'll put in that DVD to show them. She wants to share it with them. She wants to pass it along to them. Uh, makes me feel good. But she's a totally contemporary kid. She's listening to all, you know, all the latest stuff and watching, you know, shows that I can't bear. And, uh, uh, and but that's fine. She has her own life to live, and 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 she shouldn't be, you know, trying to duplicate my life or, or what I try to, you know, force that on her. But the other stuff is in her consciousness. It's there, and and that's that's all I really could possibly ask or want. So so that's a success. One morning. She loves to sing. She's a very good singer. One morning, I was driving her to school, I guess when she was in junior high school. And uh, by that time, it had, it had come to a point where I could no longer just play her or show her stuff. But she, she would roll her eyes. But I was driving the car that morning, and I said, can I play you one thing? She said, how long? I said, it's not long, just one thing. So I'd just gotten on CD, one, my all-time favorite album, which is Ella and Basie. And so I played for her, uh, Ella Fitzgerald singing uh, Them Their Eyes. It's with a basically small group, Thad Jones and wonderful people on, on this track. And when it was over, she looked at me, she said, that was perfect. I said, yep, that's what it is, perfect. And Ella Fitzgerald's her favorite singer to this day. So every now and then you have a triumph, you know. I mean, you know, one success against a thousand failures is not necessarily a bad thing. You, you, should, you have to sort of, you know, Seize the moment, take the good stuff, and uh, and this is what I try to what I try to do in life. Now I also, of course, spend most of my time hanging out with friends of a similar mindset. So you know we understand and appreciate each other's references and frame of reference, and uh, and, and and we have great fun. I mean, to us, a big event is the week tomorrow night at UCLA. They're debuting the latest ten restored Vitaphone shorts. Now forget Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm going to a Vitaphone evening. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Vitaphone is, Vitaphone was the pioneering sound uh, technique that the Warner Brothers purchased in the late 20s uh, to synchronize sound and picture. Uh, and it actually involved a 16-inch disc, the turntable, synced to the picture. And uh, if, during the course of the run of a movie, there was a break in the film, or any damage to the film. They'd make a splice, 
they had to put, they had to splice in black frames for every missing frame from the edit, or else the film would no longer be in sync with the record. And when digital sound came in and started being used, widely used in theaters, I remember, I remember Jurassic Park being an early example of this. A friend called me up and said, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, they've gone back to the Vitaphone. I said, what do you mean? He said, when they're projecting Jurassic Park up there at Universal, the sound's coming off a CD. It's not coming off the soundtrack of the movie. There's a soundtrack on the movie as a backup, but the sound you're actually hearing is coming off a separate drive of a DVD that's synchronized with the picture. I said, well, there it is. Everything old is new again. So, Vitaphone, in the early days of its existence, which is to say the late 1920s, produced hundreds and hundreds of short subjects at their studio in Brooklyn, New York, with every conceivable singer, musician, specialty act, and vaudeville act. Literally hundreds of these things. And a lot of them were lost over the years, or in some cases the picture negative existed, but they lost the soundtrack, sometimes vice versa. And about 10 years ago, a group of people who were mostly friends of mine back east, started something called the Vitaphone Project, and they made it their mission to find more of these discs, because UCLA, Film and Television Archive, had a lot of negatives to the shorts, but not the soundtrack. They've been playing matchmaker for the past 10 years, finding these discs and matching them up to negatives, and then getting funders to underwrite the restoration of a lot of these shorts. In some cases, they've gotten the children and grandchildren of some of these vaudevillians who are so thrilled that they're willing to pony up a little money to help a nonprofit like the UCLA Film Archive pay to restore the film and put it back together. And some of them have been just joyous discoveries, wonderfully talented people, uh, you know, really still relevant, funny, entertaining films. And others are junk, but that's, that's the way it goes. You don't know until you see it. And uh, the idea that there can still be discoveries it's the year 2006, Vitaphone made its debut 80 years ago. You still discover something new that is of a vintage, but still speaks, no pun intended, speaks to you today. It's exciting. That's the kind of thing I love. It's what I live for. I also like doing research, and in my research I keep finding things. Uh, there's always new stuff to discover. I started doing a, publishing a quarterly newsletter for old movie buffs about four years ago. So I wanted a place I could write about what I felt like writing about without being edited or dictated to by someone else. It's a very liberating thing to be your own publisher and editor. And, uh, and I didn't want it to be a website. I wanted it to be something you could hold in your hands. So I started doing that. And in, in starting to research things, I found all sorts of things I didn't know before. I, so I'm still learning all the time. I was down at the USC Warner Brothers collection. They have Warner's all of Warner's papers. Uh, decades of film production. I went to look in the file for the movie Hollywood Hotel, 1937 movie. In this file, I found Johnny Mercer's handwritten and typed first draft lyrics to Hooray for Hollywood, with a lot of stanzas that got discarded or changed. He originally had the idea of having various stars sing about themselves or somebody made up to be a star. Johnny Weissmuller was one, Greta Garbo was one, and they'd sing a humorous verse about themselves. Uh, and Warner said, no, we'll never get these, we'll never get permission from the people and all. So he had to generalize it, make it, you know, more, you know, talking about the stars, that having the stars talk about themselves. 
But all these original lyrics are sitting there, and I don't think they've ever been published. Uh, in fact, in the same file was a copy of Johnny Mercer's employment contract with Paul White, which Warner Brothers had to buy out to put him under contract as a staff songwriter in 1937. Uh, this is like digging through King Tut's tomb, you know. Uh, I, I just love it. And, uh, and there are other people who love it too. Uh, we may not be as big a number as the people going to see Pirates of the Caribbean, but, but, we're, but we're, we're hearty. Uh, we love this stuff. We're passionate about it. And, and there are outlets like Turner Classic Movies Channel, which uh, is kind of a miraculous being that uh, still in a mainstream way, is showing all of this vintage material to a, to a wide audience. And I always hope somebody in channel surfing might stumble onto that, find something interesting, stay, and then want to see more. It could happen. I hope it does. And, uh, and that's what keeps me going. Now, I, I love movies. I see almost all the new ones. And I'm not one of these people who says, oh, they don't make them the way they used to. They don't. But I'm not rejecting anything new. I'm looking for something good. I'm looking for something great. Uh, I just wish a lot of people, especially screenwriters, would watch more old movies and learn more about the craft of storytelling. I think the problem today is everyone lionizes the director. And you meet a lot of young people and young film students. They, they all want to be directors because it's cool. When I was growing up, if you wanted to be cool, you, you wanted to become a novelist. Now nobody reads, so there's not much, not much street cred in being a novelist. But uh, being a director sounds really cool. But being a director and actually having something to say or something to communicate in the movie are two very different things. Uh, and that's why I have great respect for people who are writer directors, who, who, who have their own story they feel passionate about, want to tell, want to put on the screen. Or just good filmmakers who know how to recognize a good story and get all the, the emotional value out of it. I saw a really good film last night I'm talking up uh, because it opens next Friday, week Friday. It's called Little Miss Sunshine. It was a hit at the Sundance Film Festival this year. Fox Searchlight bought it. It's coming out next Friday. It was directed by a husband and wife team who are among the hottest directors of TV commercials in the country. They've done hundreds. Uh, also done some very creative music videos. And they wanted to make a feature film, and somebody, the producers who bought this script were auditioning directors. They wanted to find the right director, and they liked the sensibilities of these, these two people, and, and decided to give them a chance, and they've done a beautiful job. It's a very offbeat, very unusual movie, very tough to pigeonhole, which means very tough to sell, too. I'm hoping word of mouth will make this a success. And of course, it won't be a success the way Pirates of the Caribbean is. Uh, but then, uh, it's a better movie. And I, I, I hate the fact that all anybody talks about is money. Uh, box office. As if that's the only validation there can be. Well, you all know better. You're all creative people. You know that you know creating a work of art, a composition, an arrangement, a song, whatever it may be, is in many ways, its own reward, and in some cases, has to be its own reward. Success is nice, too. Uh, everyone wants a hit. Who doesn't want a hit? But uh, it's not the only measure. Uh, and I, and I, I get discouraged that that's all that the, 
the media people who report on movies seem to be interested in. Uh, I get calls sometimes to, to, to offer a, an opinion or a soundbite to a story about the weekend box office. I say, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a stockholder. Why, why do I care? You know, I'm very happy they made a lot of money. I'm not seeing any of it. I'm more interested in the movie. Is the movie any good? That's, that's what, I mean, I'm an audience member. That's what I want to know. And uh, so this fixation on box office is something I guess that won't go away. But uh, there's also been a lot of people sort of turned off by much of what Hollywood is offering lately. And I hope that that means maybe they're getting a little more selective. And maybe they'll discover smaller films like Little Miss Sunshine. And uh, maybe, there is, maybe there's a chance for that, too. Uh, yeah? Go ahead. You're one of the few uh, film critics that actually mentions a score in a review, and uh, I wonder if you share some of your thoughts about uh, the problems of contemporary film scoring. Well, I love music, so of course I love film music. I uh, there is a there is sometimes I think there is a sameness to a lot of film music these days, and yet it's a it's sameness at a very high level of quality. You know, the, the, the level of, of competence, the sheer competence in the composing, the orchestrating, the recording, the playing, you know, is, is very, very high. But hearing something original, something that perks your ears up, that doesn't just support the film, which is what it's supposed to do first and foremost, but that also stands out in, in, a, in a good way, uh, that's something that, that attracts me even more. I mean, when I heard uh, Michael Giacchino's score for The Incredibles the year before last, I, I, I paid attention to that, and uh, I'm a member of the LA Film Critics Association. We gave him our, our best original score award that year, and he had done almost entirely television work up to then, and it's all very good work on TV. But this was his first feature, and of course, it, it, maybe it's not fair in a way because he was doing a deliberately retro score. He was doing a '60s style score, uh, so it was sort of supposed to. I call attention to itself, but it was it was of a certain kind, and it worked. It really worked for that movie. So uh, I thought that was notable. And then last year I saw a film called Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which I wasn't necessarily crazy about, but uh, I love the music in it by John Powell. So he's somebody I'm paying more attention to. And Alexander Desplat is another uh, younger composer I, I, I'm listening to more and more. Uh, I just you know. It, it's, it's, there's no formula, there's no magic formula, it's just, you know, if something is, is really good, uh, I hope I'll notice it, I hope I'll take note of it, and, uh, and then I want to try to mention it too, point it out to other people. I, uh, music is so integral to, to, to the success of, of uh, almost any movie, as I don't have to tell you, you folks, and yet it is, uh, it's so often not only unmentioned, but unappreciated. And it doesn't mean that necessarily it will work apart from the film. I've had scores I've enjoyed a lot while watching the movie, and I'll buy, I'll buy or take home the CD, and it doesn't do anything for me out of context from the film. That's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it was meant to be. It's not program music. It's meant to be uh, married to the film. And I think it's, it's icing on the cake if, if a score also plays well as music you can listen to and enjoy. Anybody else have questions? Because I, I can just yammer on in a meaningful direction for a long time. Yes. A favorite composer. Um, I guess my favorite composer is uh, Eric Wolfgang Kornblow. I uh, just love 
The Adventures of Robin Hood. I love King's Row. I can listen to those over and over and over and over again. Uh, I like all the people, everybody. I think Victor Young is very underrated. Uh, he never gets mentioned alongside the other big guys, the other giants of that era. But I, I think he just had a great, great gift for melody and uh, very lyrical themes. Uh, I love his work. And um, Bernard Herman and all the usual suspects. Somebody who's underrated that I really love uh, is uh, Jerome Maras. Uh, the Big Country is one of my all-time favorite films, because I listen to that a lot. Love that. Yeah. My all-time favorite movie is Casablanca. Uh, I wish I had a more original answer. It's a lot of people's favorite movie. Uh, it's taught as the model screenplay in courses because, as I said before, in another context, it's perfect. And it didn't come together easily. If, you, if you're a fan of the film, you've read anything about the production of it. It was as tumultuous as any modern movie, you know, playing with the script problems. But the end result sure came together beautifully. And it's got everything in it. It's got romance, suspense, humor, timeliness, politics. It's, it's all there. And uh, I was lucky enough that I saw that the first time in a theater. Not its original release, but there was a big Bogart revival in the late 60s. And they reissued a lot of his films to theaters. And that's how I first saw it on a big screen with a packed audience. It's a great way to be introduced to the film. Uh, so I, I love it. I love it dearly. I think it's, and I still think it's an enormously entertaining movie. Having said that, though, I found something from my class and showing films to people that you can't just show them something old without explaining a little bit, not apologizing for it, just setting it into a context. If you show Casablanca don't, to somebody who doesn't know anything about World War II, you're throwing them in a dark room, not giving them any help. And, and I, uh, I think it's crucial to see films in their context, even films from the, you know, from the 70s. 80s, you know, you have to know a little something, or you don't have to, but if you know a little something of the, the, the era, the background, I think it makes it more enjoyable and more accessible. But I, I do love that. Singing in the Rain, another big favorite of mine, it plays beautifully, holds up incredibly well. Uh, my favorite comedy is actually His Girl Friday, another film that just needs very little explanation, I think, very little setup. It's the Howard Hawks. Uh, a remake of the, the Ben Heck, Charles MacArthur played the front page, where they switched the sexes of the two leading characters. Uh, Hildy Johnson, reporter, was a man in the play, and the first movie version becomes a woman, played by Rosalind Russell. And uh, uh, actually, that's the only sex change. The, the editor is uh, uh, Walter Burns, played in the, the movie His Girl Friday by Cary Grant. It, if it seems fast-paced and breathless today, I can't imagine what it looked like in 1940, when things weren't at such an accelerated pace as we're used to now. It must have just, you know, blown people you know, out of their seats. It's an extraordinarily well-written, well-cast, breathlessly directed, wonderfully entertaining movie. So there's a couple of great ones, I think. I mean, that's not exactly my heart opinions. I think it's a pretty universally loved Movie. Yeah. I'm a sucker for the 1930s. I just love that decade. Uh, my first love, as a kid even, was silent film. I just I adore silent films. I like films from all periods, but there's something about the 30s that just appeals to me. Uh, the look, the music, uh, the, uh, the ambience, the, 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 the sets, the Art Deco sets, so many of those films. 
the rawness of a lot of the early 30s films made before the production code, pre-code movies that are really tough and racy and uh, uh, still kind of eye-opening today. Uh, so, and and there's, they made so many of them. Every studio is turning out 40 to 50 films a year. So there's always more <laughs> to, to see and discover. And uh, that, that's fun too. So yeah, that's, that's my favorite. And like a lot of other people, I do think the early 70s was a remarkable time for American film. And almost every young director who comes to my class, when I ask about his or her influences or role models for filmmaking, they all point to that period. They've all discovered it. It was when a whole a new generation of, of, of talent really flowered. Uh, Robert Altman and Francis Coppola and lots and lots of other really gifted people. And uh, before, and by the middle of the 70s, the blockbuster came in, and that was the end of that. But in the early 70s, there really was a, a wonderful burst of creative energy. That's a great time, too. Actually, it's true of television shows, too. You notice the TV shows have themes that, that don't relate to the title of the show anymore. Wants to, they, they all want to be oblique. Nobody wants to hit it on the head uh, anymore. Uh, well, songs and, and movies have had a, a, such an uh, interesting history together. In the 30s, when Hollywood started making musicals, sound gave them the ability to make musicals, and so there was this tremendous demand for songs, for original songs, and hundreds, thousands of songs were written for movies. And uh, by the very best, by Irving Berlin and Cole Porter, and, you know, the Gershwins, and Rogers and Hart, all the way down the line. Uh, and that continued pretty well through the 40s. And then in the 50s, things started to change. Well, of course, everything changed in the 50s. Television came along. The Hollywood studio system started, started to crumble. Uh, the studios had to divest themselves of the theater chains, and so they no longer were, you know, as productive, as prolific as they have been. And with the end of the Big Band era, or the, the, the sort of the, the decline of the Big Band era, came the era of the pop singer. And that played into that title song thing, too. So uh, the 50s became the 50s and 60s, were the, the, the golden age of the title song. My wife and I will check for channel surfing a little while ago, and Turner Classic Movies was showing Somebody Up There Likes Me with Paul Newman. And uh, just when we lingered for a minute, watching the opening scene or two, and it's the titles, the titles are on. And I forgot there was a song in that one. There was a title song in that one, not a very memorable one, but they can't all be hits, right? So watching, I, and, and it's Perry Como singing. And I said to my wife, watch, big solo title card for Perry Como. Sure enough, in bigger letters than the screenwriter got, <laughs> or the cinematographer, or the composer, the title song sung by Perry Como. Big deal. Then, that changed. And in the 70s, when movies started getting more experimental, after, you know, after Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde started changing the whole tone and mood of movies, uh, the music changed too. People who, who sat open mouth at uh, the Pimp song this year uh, may or may not be old enough to remember the year Isaac Hayes performed the theme from Shaft on the Oscar show. People thought that was the end of civilization, too. Uh, but uh, uh, that was a watershed. But then what happened was somebody, somebody discovered that although they didn't want 
to necessarily have title songs anymore because that was kind of old school, maybe a little corny, that it might not be a bad idea to have a song over the closing credits. And so another era came in. Uh, I, I love this because this is when, it was at that moment I think the Academy should have killed the category. Because that song, when it was invented as a category, was when people were actually singing the songs on screen. That was the whole idea. Fred Astaire and Ben Crosby and people like that were actually performing the songs on camera. And they'd stuck with the title song, with, with the best song category, even after that change. But now, they were playing songs as people were already turning over, over the ignition in their cars, in the parking lot. So, you, know, you need a scorecard now to tell you what film these alleged songs are from. You know, there's a song in that movie? I don't remember a song in that movie. Oh, sure, you know. Yeah. You know, now they get big names to do those songs. You know, Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney and Annie Lennox and people like this to do these songs. So it gives them a higher profile at the Oscars, certainly. I mean, I, I liked Transamerica last year. I thought Felicity Huffman gave a brilliant performance in it. But I didn't remember that song that Dolly Parton wrote. So she sang it on the, on the Oscar show. She did such a great job. She should have gotten an award. She's a great performer and a good songwriter, too. But I, I didn't connect it to the movie. So, you know, things, the only thing certain has changed, right? So I don't know what's happening, what will happen next. Well, of course, it ch changed again in the 80s when Disney started doing their animated musical features. And then once again, songs were sung on screen and uh, only by animated characters. And so that's been responsible for, you know, some good songs too. There's always hope for something. Yeah. Well, it's a rare instance. He's asking about remakes and mentioning King Kong. Uh, it's the original 33 movies, Peter Jackson's all-time favorite movie. And in the late 90s, Universal announced they were going to do a remake. And he was just an up and comer then. But he said at the time, no one should remake it. It's such a great movie, no one should remake it. But if somebody's going to do it anyway, it might as well be me. Because at least I love the original. And I'll try to respect it. Then they decided to put off the remake until just, you know, last year. And they finally got done. And I think it's a very rare instance of a remake that does honor the original movie, even while reinventing it and being its own movie. So I, uh, so I was very happy with that picture. I mean, I see it as a total. I see it as a separate entity from the from the original film. But uh, I liked it a lot. Uh, it's very rare, though, that somebody who's given that opportunity cares that much about the first film to want it. You know. Treated by. I was thinking maybe we could introduce a constitutional amendment against remakes and sequels. But the Congress seems busy with other things, so I guess we won't get to that. Uh, thank you all for being so attentive. Very nice to be here tonight. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.